Every once in a while, we're going to take a break from what we're studying through Genesis 1 to 11. And we're going to be talking about how it impacts us today, how it impacts culture. We call these So What Sundays. We're studying Genesis 1 and 2. We've kind of gotten to the end of Genesis chapter 2. We're about to get to the fall, Genesis 3. That's going to be fun. Uh, but before we get there, we want to, uh, Michael and I have felt impacted by the Lord to take a break and say, okay, now that we know Genesis 1 and 2, how all things were created, how humans were created, what does that mean for us? And so we call them So What Sundays. Well, I, we talked about one of these when we did uh, the Sunday with our uh, Korean friends, and uh, we talked about God's design in, in making us human. But today I want to talk about a specific part of what it means to be made in the image of God and how that is going to be impacted by our culture. Uh, we're going to be talking about identity and roles. And here's the questions I'm hoping that I am able to answer for you today from God's word. Where do I find my identity according to my designer? What does it mean when I say my identity is blank? And what did my designer intend for my roles to look like after he made me and put me here on this planet? Now, I could, th this topic could cover so many different aspects of our culture. And I just want to point you to a message that actually Michael did on 2.8.18 several weeks ago when he covered this topic, but he covered it in a little different way. And so I really appreciated his message, and I want to direct you there. He just did a fabulous job of, of exposing uh, some of the ways that the culture and the church are going to disagree. Uh, today I'm going to do something a little bit different from what he did, and if you take my message and his message, I think they'll be complementary uh, to one another. And so hopefully you'll, you'll revisit that on 2-18, February 18th, all right? The first thing I want you to know, when it comes to the church... And what we should be talking about, what we should be preaching about. Number one, God provides all the answers. When we go into our culture, we need to have an understanding that God does provide all the answers. If you're wondering why you're here, why are you born, why, are you, why do you exist? God provides those answers and he provides them in scripture. Our church needs to know the answers so that we can instruct our families. <laughs> we need to be able to lead our families to know why we're here. Number two, we need to challenge popular culture. You will hear things today that clearly challenge popular culture. Please understand, my goal is not to be obstinate, nor is it to be uncaring. The bottom line, though, is that everybody listens to somebody. Everybody listens to somebody, and groupthink these days is out of control. Majority rules, not just in politics, but also in moral foundations and in moral teachings. And typically we feel most comfortable finding people to gather around us that will say what we want them to say. Those environments make us feel most comfortable. And if that's you, join the club. I mean, you want to be around somebody that makes you feel the most comfortable. Which is, by the way, why I'm here, because I don't always make you feel all that comfortable. But what I say is not, God willing, my opinion on the subjects. But I'm trying to help you understand what God says about these subjects. 
because God does say something about every subject culture teaches is black or white. This day and age in which we live was prophesied in Scripture way back in 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. And it says this, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the what church? They will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. This is 2018. Because we live, and in this politically uh, explosive climate, we regularly find people around us who think like we do. It's very uncomfortable to be around people who do not think like we do. And politics has hijacked just about every moral issue there is. And I want to tell you, politics has no right to tell you what's black or, or white, <laughs> no more than a movie star has to tell you about moral issues either. I think that's so funny. Like I remember when uh, in the 90s there was like this, uh, there was epidemic of, uh, of kids getting pregnant in school and so uh, MTV decided they were gonna do this huge, uh, this huge symposium on uh, whether or not sex should be taught in schools and they wanted to make sure that uh, it was watched by many viewers so they had to pick somebody that really knew the subject and had some moral ground to stand on so they picked Madonna. It was hilarious, <laughs> it was hilarious. But nothing has changed, nothing has changed. Uh, movie stars will tell you what morally is right or wrong. Newscasters have turned into theologians. Our world is completely upside down. And the fact of the matter is, in our world today, people are most comfortable getting people around them that say what they want to hear. All right? But God's word says um, they will turn away from listening to the truth. So there is a truth. And don't turn away and listen, listen to myths. I may not be able to tell you how close we are to the end of the world, but I can tell you we are in this passage of Scripture today. Um... So today I might challenge you with what I say. And today I might solidify things that you already believe. But my goal in any of this is not to, is, is not to tickle your ears. <laughs> my goal is to speak the truth. All right? Not to be obstinate, <coughs> excuse me, not to be uncaring, but to relay God's truth the best that I can. And our responsibility is always to put all of what we're being taught or heard or anything like that, all of what we're told to believe under the microscope of God's word. That's our responsibility. The verse right before this actually says this in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Preach the word. Isn't that interesting? Right before it says people are going to abandon this and go to people that tickle their ears, right before it it says preach the word. What is the word, church? The Bible. Preach the word. It's what we do here on Sundays every day. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Do you know what that means? That means when you're ready for it and when you're not ready for it. When you're at Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> and when you're in the schoolroom teaching your kids and when you're checking out at the grocery store. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We are to use God's word as our blueprint for living. As a matter of fact, the verses right before this one in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, 
This is what the Bible is. All scripture is breathed out by who, church? By God. Not by Craig, not by Village Church East. All scripture is breathed out by God and it is therefore profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man slash woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible has a lot to say about itself. And what it says is, this is a good foundation for how you are to believe and think about anything the culture brings at you, all right? And the third thing is, uh, for, the, um, for why we're talking about this today, is there is a battle for identity. Today there is a huge battle for identity and who you identify with. You will be identified, even defined, by your political views, your ethnic backgrounds, your sexual preferences. This is how the world will identify you. You are blank, and they will use one thing, one word, to identify you. Now, if you look up the word identity in Webster's, what it says there is, this, identity is, quote, the fact of being who or what a person is. The fact of being who or what a person is. So, if I were to ask you, who are you? I wonder what you would say. I wonder if I went across the hall and said, to all those folks over there, who are you? And people, people would go, I'm, I'm on a journey to find myself. Who, who am I? Where does my information come from in order for me to figure out who I am? Does it come from my feelings? Does it come from my sexual drive? Does it come from my, uh, does it come from my ethnic background? I am Canadian, is that who I am? <laughs> yes, I am. I am Korean, is that who I am? <laughs> I am definitely not Korean, that's for sure. The Koreans, they would come up to me. We had, we had uh, several of them staying at my home, and they have very flat noses, and so they would come up to me, and they were constantly pushing my nose, and they would call me Pinocchio, Pinocchio. Yeah. I am definitely not Korean. <laughs> that's right. That's good, Bo. <laughs> very nice. That's right. You don't have flat nose. I have a big nose. No argument there. You seen this profile? All right. The Bible, however, is our authority on our identity. God will tell you who you are. If you don't listen to God to tell you who you are, then somebody else is going to tell you. And you will likely start listening to that person for one reason or another and then gather around with groups of people who say they're the same thing. Where do you go? Who do you listen to to find out who you are? Culture will always change. It'll tell you on what hill that you have to die on from year to year. And then it'll attempt to back it up with science. Uh, National Geographic, um, on this issue of gender, our, our society today will say you are and whatever your gender is or whatever your gender is in your head, that's who you are. Let me just uh, tell you a little bit about how this came to this point in our culture. National Geographic in 2017 actually had this header, how science is helping us understand gender. And when, when culture does this, when culture says, okay, you are, you are to understand who you are based on your gender. You are to understand who you are based on your ethnic background. You have to decide which science 
they are using to back up their data. Now, you remember we talked about this a little while ago. The, the Bible never disagrees with science, but the Bible will often disagree with cultural science. These are two separate things, and we showed this slide to you a little while ago, and I'll, I'll show it to you again because it's such a good slide. When you look through the lens of the Bible, the Bible will never disagree with science. There will always be agreement. You know, unless it's a miracle where God is demonstrating who he is, and he's bending creation to work in a certain way by changing how, how nature is to work. Healing the sick, healing the blind, walking on water. Once in a while, God will do that. But Bible will always back up science. However, cultural science will often disagree with the Bible. And so you have to decide which science you are being taught, which science you are being uh, exposed to. The two kinds of science, let me define them for you. The first one is observational science. Observational science is what you learned in high school or junior high. So this is what you're used to. Observational science is controlled observations done in order to study cause and effect. That is the definition of the observational science. And this is what we're all used to. It's driven by provable theories. Observations drive conclusions. It's observable, you can watch it happen. It is powered by experiments that can visibly prove how things work and it always agrees with the Bible. That is observational science. Do you know why science always agrees with the Bible? Because God made science. It's, it's, it's obvious. The problem is we live in a world that translates observational science and puts it into the same category as cultural science. The difference between observational science and cultural science is this. Cultural science is the, re re these are all quotes, by the way, from different um, scientific websites. Here's one quote. The result of dialogue and convergence between evolutionary or complex theory, especially as it relates to evolutionary economics, and the study of change in human relationships and identities especially in creative industries and cultural studies. That's a lot of words, all right? But what it means is, bullet points, cultural science is driven by not provable theories, it is driven by groupthink. Conclusions drive observations. It's completely the other way around. Number two, many times it is not observable. These are feelings, emotions that are studied with a conclusion already in mind and theories that try and back up that preconceived notion. Number three, it is powered typically by emotion. And number four, it is typically anti-Bible. Now, here's another quote from culturalscience.org. If you're interested in finding out what cultural science is, you will not find this in the world around us. They will say science and they will say science is observational science and cultural science. But they are two different things. They are drastically contrasted to one another. Here's another quote from culturalscience.org. You'll be amazed at this. Cultural science therefore seeks an evolutionary understanding of a knowledge-based society past and present in order to map the possibility space of future scenarios for creative productivity, both market-based and in community contexts, to which public policy and business strategies must adapt. Again, a lot of words, but do you know what that says? 
In English, here's what that says. Decide how the evolutionary process is changing humankind in order to adapt present generations to new thinking so that we can operate better in the future. That's what that says. If you boil it way down, it is cultural science is the emphasis of an evolutionary understanding of science in culture that we must adapt so that our future can be better. And if you don't adapt to it, you are preventing a better future for this group of people. Now, does that sound more familiar? Yeah. So before we talk about anything, we have to determine the world in which we're navigating and the words that we are using. Are we talking about cultural science or are we talking about observable science? It brings me finally to my first point. <laughs> you thought I was done, didn't you? First point is this. God has a design for my identity. God designed my identity. Why do I say that? Because he's the creator and I'm the creature. It's not really rocket science here. God designed me as I am to function in a certain way. He is the creator, I am the created. I want to take you to our second passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at um, mainly here this morning. That's in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. So if you want to look that up, 2 Peter 2, verse 9, it's a powerful verse. Here's God's design for my identity. God says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Your identity designed by God is found in this passage from beginning to end. Our identity is found primarily in the God who made us to be who we are. There it is right there, your chosen race. What is your identity, church? Let's say it. You are a what? First one. Chosen your chosen race. You are a what? A royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for his own possession. Isn't that great? You want to know who you are? It's right there in black and white. God doesn't let you wander. He doesn't let you succumb to culture that changes. He said, listen, you're wondering why you're here? Here's why you're here. You're here so that you can be special, so that you can be set apart, a holy people, so that you can be for me. That's why you're here. Number two, our identity has a purpose. That's right next, next door here. So that you may proclaim, well, we'll see it together. Here we go. What is our purpose, church? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why are you here? <laughs> I know, it's, it's pretty easy, right? right? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of God. That's living out image. That is doing what God created us, the purpose of why we're here to do. Number three, our identity will look different from the world around us. Count on it. You were not a people. 
<laughs> That's before you knew Jesus Christ. You were not a people. You were just wandering aimlessly around like everybody else. You were not a people, but now you are who, church? You are God's people. Isn't that great? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are, beloved, I urge you as, what is it? Sojourners and exiles. If you look at me and say, well, Craig, I just don't feel like I fit in. I would say, sounds about right. <laughs> because you are an exile. Would somebody explain to me what an exile is? How many people would love to be an exile? <laughs> I'd finally be by myself, uh, get rid of my kids, right? An exile is somebody that's been booted out of, the, out of the country club. An exile is somebody that's been ousted. Exile doesn't fit in. You're exiled. What's a sojourner? Uh, 21 Koreans in my house, they're sojourners. They, they stick around for a little while. They eat weird food and they, and they slurp and they, and they, uh, they have uh, different ways of, of talking and I don't understand anything that they say, but, but it was great. I had such a good time with them. I loved all of those students. It was awesome. Best trip we've ever done. But anyway, besides that, they were sojourners. They just didn't fit in. We are sojourners in this world. We are not, you are not meant to fit in. Sojourners. Our identity will look different from the world. Our, our identity will have war waged against us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which what, church? You feel like the passions of your flesh wage war against the beliefs you have in your mind? Join the club. This is told to us. This is our war that will be waged. The passions of the flesh wage war against us. You are not here because it's easy. There's going to feel like you're in war. And if you sit down at the Thanksgiving table with somebody that you love, somebody from your own family, somebody that you, you cherish and whose diapers you may have changed as a child, and they look at you and they say, I don't know who I am. And if that breaks your heart, join the club. Breaks my heart too. Because I know who I am. Because God's word tells me who I am. I belong to Jesus. I am his person. I'm his people. <laughs> I'm like a sojourner in exile here and I feel like there's a war waged against my family members. When they come and they tell me, I don't know who I am. Or they might say, I believe what the culture is telling me who I am. Our identity will waged, be waged war against mostly by what church? The passion of the flesh. What does that mean? If I say passion of the flesh, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, you, we, we, all, we all chuckle a little bit. We know what that is, right? It's the pull of our flesh for self-sexual desires. That is the passion of the flesh. It is the, it is the pull of this life for my own proud satisfaction. It is the pull of this flesh that I would be somebody and I would crawl up on your back to get up there. That's the passion of the flesh. It's the drive of this flesh to be better than you or to, be, or to put you in your place or to be right or pride or whatever it is or even the sexual challenges that we have in our lives. Now, final question in this verse. What's at stake? What's at stake, church? Yeah. It's more than just your belief. It's more than just your tolerance of the world around you. What is at stake is your soul. 
The, the war is waged not against your belief systems. The war is waged not so that you can figure out how to make the Bible applicable to the culture today. The war is waged because there are two entities striving to, to save or destroy your soul. The stakes are huge. Identity that's designed by the culture. Let's talk a little bit about nuts and bolts here. The two words that the world will use are sex and gender. These are, this is the battlefield today. Sex and gender are interchangeable words in Webster's Dictionary. Did you know that? Look it up. Go to Webster's Dictionary. This was written, I know, a while ago. But sex and gender, interchangeable words. What is your gender? What is your sex? Interchangeable. Culture has changed these words to mean something different. Sex is what you do. Gender is who you are. Your identity. Culture has elevated this idea of a sexual relationship to not only be something that is okay in society, but it identifies you as an individual. Now keep in mind, God does not keep this away from us. In 2 Peter, in the passage that we just read, he said, here's who you are. Don't get lost. Culture will try and define that for you. And the battleground today is the passion of the flesh in the basis desire because sex is what you do. Gender is who you are. And gender has graduated beyond sex that you are born with, your, your bits and pieces. Sex has now come to be a defining factor in our lives. Our gender becomes our identity. Our identity is based in our libido. It's crazy, isn't it? CNN began their 2016 story with, for some people, gender is not just about being male or female. In fact, how one identifies can change every day or even every few hours. This is why when you hear words like this, we live in this culture, and the church should probably talk about this more, and I feel badly that we haven't because this has come in like a roller coaster. This is why we live in a world where we hear this phrase and we don't think anything about it. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. That is regular conversation today. Goes unchallenged. And my question is, why? Why can we not challenge that? Do we live in a culture that is so intolerant that we can't challenge that thinking with some truth from God's word? And if we do, we eventually, I'm telling you, this has become such a roller coaster that if we, if, if I give this message in 10 years, I might not get out of here alive. This is going to be turned into hate speech and the authorities will be called and I'll be put into jail. If we don't put the brakes on cultural, um, on a cultural activity that has hijacked morality, we are going to be in trouble as a church. And again, I'm not trying to be obstinate. I'm not trying to be uncaring. I have people in my own life that have come to me and said, I am gay. I love them. I would give my life for these people. But I believe what God says in his word. And I can't take culture and slap it over scripture and say, now we look at scripture through the lens of culture. I have to take the Bible and slap it over culture and say, does culture agree with what God says is right and meant to be how my life is meant to run? He created me. And these words have never changed in scripture. And if I can't do that, why can't I do that? 
If you think to yourself, well, Craig, you're going off the deep end here a little bit. This is, uh, some people are not quite that crazy about it. <laughs> I went to the GLAD website and I found some identity terms for us. And this whole, this whole slideshow that I'm gonna show you from here forward is introduced by this one slide. Know your, what church, what's it say? Identity. Know your identity. And here we go. You could be gender, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna zip through this. You could be gender fluid. Um, I don't know, you, you can be gender fluid, there's an explanation up there. A person whose gender identity, all of these have the word identity on them. You know, that's what, that's what makes me mad about this. And if you feel like I'm getting a little mad, I am, because, because what they're doing is they are telling you you are no more than your libido. Jesus died not so you could have sex with somebody. Jesus died so that you could be a child of his. We, we, we have denigrated humankind to our sexual drive when in reality God says you are so much more than your sexual drive. G gender fluid is a person whose gender identity or gender expression is not fixed and shifts over time. Transgender, you've probably heard these terms before, is an umbrella term used to describe people whose gender identity does not match. Pansexual is people who are capable of being attracted to multiple sexes. Bisexual is somebody who is attracted to both men and women. Cisgender is a person who identifies with the sex that they're assigned with at birth. Uh, asexual means a person who is generally not, uh, does not experiment or desire sex. Intersex, somebody who is uh, born with a sex that doesn't fit the typical definition of male or female. Queer is a brand, uh, broad term that is inclusive of people who are not straight and or cisgender used, of, uh, used as discriminatory in the past, but uh, those who identify with it are comfortable with it. Queer gender, uh, gender queer, those whose gender identity is not just a man or a woman. All right. Um, so even talking about this, I feel very uncomfortable. And I, I'm just gonna be honest with you because I can't believe we're talking about this in church. But if we don't talk about it in church, culture wins. Your identity is not found in your, uh, well, the, the, the key to all those slides that we just saw was your identity is found in your assigned designation. It is who you are. And your designation is found primarily in your sexual attraction. If you do the research, by the way, you'll find that not everybody agrees with all of those slides. Like Facebook is giving you now 50 designations of what sex or gender you are. Here's the, here's the key, culture has changed this whole thing by saying sex is what you do, but gender is who you are. And that's, that's, that's a hijacking of, uh, of God's terms because gender is not who you are. <clears throat> Additionally, by the way, culture says if you are who you are, be loud and proud. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Uh, this is me, <laughs> who you are. Don't let anyone tell you differently. In Canada and British Columbia, parents were, uh, had um, their child born to them last year, this 2017. They already had a medical card uh, changed for their new baby. It's designated on the medical card. They refused to get a birth certificate. So the medical card, they designated their baby in the gender category as you, which stands for undecided or unassigned. Uh, the parents are non-binary. They don't identify as male or female. And so they had the child outside of the hospital. So they had the child at home 
uh, so that the hospital could not see the genitals and decide if they were male or female. Dodie is the dad's name, and he said this when he was interviewed on CBC television. Dodie said, it's up to Cyril to decide, oh, by the way, they, they don't call their child he or she, they call them they, all right? So Dodie said, it's up to Cyril to decide how they identify, meaning his baby, when they are old enough to develop their own gender identity. And then he goes on further to say, when I was born, doctors looked at my genitals and made assumptions about who I would be. Notice the, the words he uses there. And those assignments followed me and followed my identification through my whole life. These assumptions were incorrect and I ended up having a lot of adjustments since then. He had a lot of difficulty in his own life with this and so he decided that the right thing to do would not be assign his child a sex on the birth certificate. I find it interesting in his interview how many times he used the word identification or identity. Now, is gender identity observable science or cultural science? Well, let's examine it. Is it driven by provable theory? In other words, is it observation that drives conclusion? It's absolutely not. Observation that drives conclusion is look at the bits and pieces and figure out what you are, right? Is it observable? Nope. Is it powered by experiments that we can visibly prove how things work? No. Does it agree with the Bible? Nope. Is it cultural science? Is it driven by groupthink? Yes. It is, a, it is a conclusion that drives an observation. I conclude that I had problems with my own sexuality, therefore, I'm not gonna do the same to my child, even though it looks like they're male, I'm gonna make sure that they, that they uh, have to make their own choice later on. It's a conclusion driven by an observation. Um, or, or it's, a, it's a conclusion that drives an observation. Is it observable? No, it is not. It's absolutely not observable. Is it powered by emotion? Yes, it is. It is typically anti-Bible. This, uh, uh, um, gender identification is based on cultural science, clearly, not observational science. Except for the rare observations of somebody that's born with abnormalities. And I, I want to say that, and, and sometimes Sometimes weird things happen in, in the birth process and, and sometimes there's more than one evidenced, observable genital makeup there. Uh, but science will typically call this in every other field an anomaly. Only in this part of science do they say, based on that, we're gonna make sweeping observations on everybody else. It doesn't even make sense that way. And by the way, if that happens, um, lovingly, we, we need to be real careful with those parents and, and do some, some serious counseling and help them understand how to raise their child the way that God would want them to. Here's the problem. Elevating your sexual preference to the level of your own identity does not work in real time. It just doesn't work. A study last month in February 2018 at the University of Minnesota interviewed nonconformists and transgender to ask 81,000 students about their views of nonconforming and transgender. 3% of teens did not identify with any traditional gender labels. All of those kids had significantly poorer health, all of them straight across the board, had poorer health including poor mental health. And all of them had visited the school nurse way more often than cisgender teens or teens that would be male or female. 
um, and, and, and be, be driven by those traditional male and female drives, male for male, or male for female, female for male. So the solution of the study, do you know what the solution was? I bet you could guess. Here's the solution of the study. 3% of these kids are struggling, they're going to the nurse, they're mentally, they're, they're on drugs they're for, for mental challenges that they're, they're having. So the solution of the study is, quote, that we need to have a growing awareness and visibility of gender non-conforming youth to make, to make teenagers more comfortable steering away from their traditional gender, gender labels. Do you know what that means? That means you're the problem, and I'm the problem. The solution is to throw more eggs into the basket if the outcome doesn't seem to be working. The solution is it's not working because not enough people buy into it. The solution is never, is this the way that we were designed to function in the first place? Here's the real solution. Our solution is that our identity is found in who God created us to be. And he gives us clear teaching in scripture as to how he created us to be. 1 Peter 2.9 says, I remind you, the two first words are, you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are God's people. You live to proclaim his name. That's who you are. If you're wondering who you are, don't debase it to your sexual drive. Look higher than that. Look up to God. He created you with so much more potential than that. The challenge is sin will always try and mess us up. It always has. But we are constantly called back to God through Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus can restore his image in us and our identity, even our identity, can be restored to what it was always meant to be. All right, I'm gonna zip through this last one here. God's design for expressed roles. The reason I wanna do this one is because this, I think, is a solution to our identity crisis. God's original design gives us identity. In Genesis 1.27 it says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and over everything that moves on the earth. We've already talked about the last part of this verse and what it means to have dominion and Adam enjoying creation that God gave to him and us taking care of the earth. We've already talked about all of that. But we need to talk about the first part of this verse. What does it mean to be made male and female? The image of God meant males and females. You are created in the image of God whether you're a male or a female. You are created in the image of God. These designations were specific and on purpose. Males were needed for a reason. Females were needed for a reason, right? Males were needed to mess things up. Females were needed to clean things up, right? <laughs> or clean the things the males messed up is what I meant. Not clean things up. Both were created differently and both were created on purpose. And the bottom line is we are designed uniquely in God's image on purpose. We mirror God on this earth like nothing else. We as human beings have a soul, we have relationships, we have dominion, we can increase in our intellect, we have conscience. All of these things separate us from a tree or a rock or a bush or a fish. We are uniquely created by God on purpose and that means that we have a soul. We are meant to use all of these things, all of these capacities, the way that we think, the way that we have relationships, all of these should mirror God who made us to look 
more like him. This is what it means to proclaim the excellencies of he who made us. Even when sin came in, it could not completely crush the image of God in us. We might lose capacity because of sin. Some may have lost all, most of their capacity. Uh, physical, uh, physical challenges will cause you to lose capacity of, being, of what it means to be made as a human being. Um, sickness or comatose or being comatose or being in a vegetable state or developmental challenges. These can all dis, um, di, um, diminish the image of God in us. But even in that state, you are still image of God. A, a little baby that is born can't do anything. You have to do everything for them, include changing their diapers and feeding them. They can't do anything. Does that make them less of an image than you because you can take care of yourself better? No. It just means that they have less of a capacity than you do to live out what makes you uniquely an image of God. Just like somebody who is diminished in their physical state because of sickness or something like that. It doesn't mean they're not in the image of God. They are human, and that is valuable. We all lose some capacity, we all, we all lose all of our capacity in spiritual brokenness. When we, when we fell into sin in Genesis chapter three, we had the sin nature passed on to all of us. We're all broken in that area. And that's why our first answer to most of our challenges is usually the wrong one. That's why Romans 3.10 says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not, how many, how many church? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. How many people? Not even one. The Bible says this over and over and over again so that we will understand you are diminished severely in your spiritual capacity, but it doesn't make you less of a human. It doesn't make you less of an image bearer. The difference is the roles that we play is God's act of redeeming his image in us. Here's what I mean by that. When I live my life in certain ways, the roles that I play in those areas can image God better as I surrender them to him. I can be a great father. I can be a better father if I'm a father for the Lord. I can be a good husband. I can be a great husband if, I, if I'm a husband that God wants me to be. I can, be a, uh, I can be a good worker, but I can be a great worker if I work as to the Lord and not to men. See the difference? The roles that I play every day in my life can be and are be and should be being redeemed so that I am better at living out the image of God in this world around me. And the roles that I play are also fluid, but God's identity in me is unmovable. It is solid. I am God's. That is solid. The roles I play can change. What do I mean by that? Well, I can be a son that honors his mom. I can be a husband one day. I can be a husband that loves my wife the next day. I can be a father that teaches my children the next day. The roles that I play can all be redeemed so that my image, the image that I'm reflecting of God, is clearly seen in this world around me. But my function as a dad, a husband, a father, a worker, my function does not influence my identity. I am still an image of God. My function doesn't give me identity. 
My background doesn't even give me identity. <laughs> Frank is Italian. Is anyone confused about that? <laughs> but Frank is primarily a child of God. That's what gives him identity. And even more than that, he's a child of God because he's first an image of God that has been redeemed into a child of God. See the difference? I'm Canadian, but that does not give me my identity. My identity is found in being, I am an image of God that God is redeeming so that I can be a better husband, father, and I can be a better role player in all these areas, but it is not my identity. You get it? My sexual relationship is reserved only for my wife. Therefore, it does not identify me. It is a role I play in an area of my life. It is a way that I function as a husband. We don't get to pick something out and say, now that's my identity. We have to keep those things in their proper roles as God, as God wants them to be so that I can be a proper image of God in the roles that I play, but I'm always an image of God. Does that make sense? The world has taken a function and put it into the category of identification. But it is only a function. Now, if you have more questions on this, I would, again, suggest you listen to Michael's message. He did a great job on this from two weeks ago. Um, there's verses all through Scripture. Let's just zip through these verses real quick. Um, men, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. See that up there, uh, Ephesians 5.33. Husband, love his wife as himself. Wife, let the see that she respects her husband. Children, Ephesians 6.1. Obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Um, moms, there's way too many verses there for, for me to list. Uh, a good one is in Proverbs 6.20. Mothers should be teaching constantly. God's design for us is for us to live out our roles, but these are roles. These are not our identity. These are roles that we play. So whether I'm single or married, I am valuable. My identity is in God and who God called me to be. So I'm going to be the best single I can be. If I'm married, I'm equal in value. I am complementary in biology to my wife and my role and my capacity. We work together. Our functions don't identify us. Because I could be a husband in here or a pastor today or a, 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 a dad in this role. My roles don't give me identity. They are roles that I play. Um, all right, let's throw that verse up there one more time and we'll read this as I clean this up here. God gave you identity. He gave me identity and he gave me roles to play. Our identity is found in who God created me to be, an image of God who is being redeemed in the roles that I play. Does that make sense? I am an image of God who is being redeemed in the roles that I play. And the activities that I do in those roles are gradually, hopefully, looking more and more like Jesus Christ. Our identity is primarily found in who God made us to be. It has a purpose. It's going to look different from the world. It's going to look different from the world in which we live. It'll be challenged. It'll be waged war against. And there's a lot at stake. More than just my identity, my soul is at stake. Following God's plan for your life will make you stick out in this world like an exile. So don't feel bad. Don't feel bad. Be bold. Be proud. Jesus saved you to stick out. So if you feel like you stick out, good job. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, that's how he begins the whole thing. He said, who in the world would light a candle and put it under a big basket? Makes no sense. When Jesus comes and he redeems you, he lights you up. Why? So you can stick out. Sometimes that's no fun. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's really painful when you look across the table into eyes that you love, who tell you my identity is found in my sexual orientation. And I don't believe what you believe about my sexual orientation. And I just look at them and say, no, 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 oh, sweetie, no. <laughs> Your identity is who you are in Jesus. Your identity is God created you and loves you and you belong to him. That's your identity. Your sexual orientation, that's just, that's just a drive that you have. Is it hard to control? Yep. Let's have a show of hands who has a hard time controlling their sexual drive. No, we won't do that. <laughs> Join the club. Join the club. But it's, it's because we're in a fallen world. But for goodness sakes, don't let your sexual drive become your identity. Why diminish who you are to that base of a presupposition? Stop listening to popular culture. They're usually wrong. Start listening to God. He's always right. Let's pray. This was a long message. I'm sure everybody's really grateful that we're finally at the prayer point. But Lord, this is a tough, tough, tough message. So tough. There are people that are so special to us that listen to the world and have gone astray. And they're making decisions that are hurting themselves and have no promise for a beneficial future. And so, Lord, I want to end my message today by just praying from the bottom of my heart. That you would bring prodigals home. Those who know your truth, who've been taught it, who grew up with it, but who have abandoned it because the culture has given them a line way too easy to swallow. Call them home. Convince them that you love them more than their groups do. Convince them that you have a higher purpose than their groups have convinced them they do. And even though it hurts sometimes because it hurts our hearts, help us to never give up standing on the truth. Help us to remain firm in what you've taught us in your word so that we can stand out as lights in this generation and proclaim to them who they are because your son died for them. And help us to be an example in our marriages and in our parents' responsibilities and in our friendships and in all of our relationships. Help us to never back down from what we know is right. It's hard, Lord. It is hard to, to do this one. And so I leave all of, the, uh, all of what happens from here to you. Sink it deep into our hearts and help us with humility to receive it like we should. In Jesus' name, amen.